the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Welcome to today's Michelle Miao Show from the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find more of our programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial and your co-host for today's program. Now, my co-host is a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and she is also the host of the Michelle Miao Show. She is, of course, Michelle Miao. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you who are joining us this afternoon. Before Donald Trump put, in, put anti-immigration policies and ideologies on a national platform, there was Sheriff Joe Arpaio, America's toughest sheriff, who served over 20 years for Maricopa County, Arizona. Arpaio targeted undocumented immigrants who had not committed any crimes, resulting in over tens of thousands of immigrants deported. In 2017, he was convicted of contempt of court for ignoring a previous order to stop racial profiling, but was later pardoned by President Donald Trump. Despite the pardon, Arpaio hasn't won an election since being defeated in 2016. So who is responsible for the takedown of America's toughest sheriff? Our guests today are Terry Green-Sterling and Jude Joffe-Block, who are the authors of Driving Wild Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance. Welcome, Terry and Jude. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So, gosh, where do we start? There's so much to this, uh, to the book. I, I haven't finished it like I, I told you before we started, but I am so eager to finish it. Um, I loved what you said in one interview in which you said most people actually don't even know, don't even know the name of the sheriff in their town. And you're absolutely right. I thought about it. So why don't we start there and getting to know Joe Arpaio. And that's how the book starts and describing like who this person is, just, you know, what kind of a person he is or was his background and how he got to his position. Well, in the book, we go into, um, we, we make a lot of uh, effort to show the context, to contextualize Joe Arpaio's life and to show uh, what shaped him. And one of the things that we learned was that his father was a Southern Italian who immigrated to the United States during a period um, when Southern Italian immigrants were reviled and not wanted and called all the names that Joe Arpaio's followers would later call Latino immigrants and um, Latino people. So um, Joe Arpaio's dad barely made it into the uh, United States, and uh, Joe Arpaio faced many taunts as a kid, uh, anti-immigrant taunts. Later, he uh, joined the uh, um, he, Drug Enforcement uh, the, the ancestor of today's DEA and drug enforcement. And, um, he became, uh, quite a star in the DEA. He, uh, did learn several tricks that we will later see in his, uh, life as a sheriff. And one of those tricks was that he, um, learned to uh, charge on conspiracy theories and sort of developed a fondness for conspiracy theories. Later on, he becomes a birther and he charges, uh, he investigates and charges uh, people under conspiracy theories. Um, he also learned uh, to, that he loved being in the media and he self-identified uh, by how much he was in the media. And um, finally, he learned how to assume personas um, that fake personas to do undercover drug work. And, and, and it's my view that his final persona, one that he jumped into with gusto, is America's toughest sheriff. 
And he started that position in, in 1992. Um, and he'd already retired from the DEA at that point. Um, so it was really a second career. And at first, immigration wasn't a focus of his. Um, when he first was sheriff, he was famous. He was known nationally for his tough policies, especially towards jail inmates. Um, but it's not till later when, when the, the political winds start changing in Arizona and immigration enforcement starts to become a very important part um, to the a very important topic to the Republican base in Arizona that we see um, state policies changing and we also see Joe Arpaio emerging as as one of the most um, vocal and exuberant enforcers. Now tell us or give us a setting of Maricopa County for those of us who are not from Arizona or who only have known about it from headlines here and there. What was it like when he got into the into the sheriff's office and, you know, how did it how has it changed? Obviously, we know a, a, a big demographic change that's happening. But what were the demographics at the beginning and how did that affect his popularity or his uh, room to move? Jude? Oh, well, um, I was going to defer to Terry, who was living in Maricopa County at the time and, um, as, as somebody who spent most of her life here. But um, but it's such a great question because the demographics of Maricopa County, which are um, the county is is really the largest in Arizona. The population center of Arizona is the majority is based in Maricopa County. So Phoenix is in Maricopa County, Scottsdale, Tempe, Mesa, these cities that uh, much of your audience will have heard of. Um, this big sprawling metro area of around Phoenix is all encompassed around Maricopa County, which geographically is one of the largest counties in the country. Um, and um, and over time, the demographics have been shifting. Um, Arizona is one of these states where um, we have one of the oldest white Anglo populations in the country, and one of and the young people who are under eighteen are majority um, of color. And so the uh, Maricopa County has been shifting over the years um, to have a larger uh, Latino population. Um, and the white population has been diminishing in that time. And so these demographic changes and some of the um, anxiety that that provokes among certain members of the population are very much the backdrop for the, the period of history that we're writing about. Yeah. And, and, and just to take a step back and to add what Jude so beautifully said is the history of Maricopa County is, uh, is not a beautiful history. Um, it's fraught with, uh, with racism. Uh, Maricopa County, Phoenix is the seat of, is the biggest, you know, uh, metro is the biggest city in Maricopa County. And, um, it was started by an ex-Confederate soldier. And in the book, we, we go into how um, the word Phoenix for many in the defeated Confederacy meant rebirth of the South. And I often think about that and and think, wow, sometimes that really happened in Phoenix. So um, people of color and were mostly Latino, and um, they faced a lot of discrimination from early times on, uh, and they, they fought it. They, they developed, um, a resistance very early to, uh, many civil rights violations. And so the resistance that we write about in this book is informed by the, by the resistance that took place before. And one thing we point out in the book is just that, as Terry said, the history of racism against and discrimination against Mexicans, which of course, Arizona used to be part of Mexico. And there was a moment in time where the border crossed the people who were living there. Um, and the, this persistent discrimination against uh, Mexicans and people who were perceived to be Mexican immigrants, even if their family had been in on this land for generations, is something that um, that continued um, and informed many of the people who went on to fight Joe Arpaio, who, who had experienced this firsthand as children or through their family, through generations, um, and including traffic stops, something we'll talk about later. One of the things that central to the book is the kind of traffic enforcement that led to racial profiling under Joe Arpaio. But even this, this, um, this kind of profiling is something that has a long history long before Arpaio um, in Arizona um, because of these tensions and, and the history there. 
Yes, we will absolutely get to uh, those types of immigration enforcements, but very racist practices of Joe Arpaio's office. Uh, but you had mentioned something earlier, Jude. You said, you know, before even the immigration, um, you know, enforcements, Joe Arpaio had been dealing with a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, lawsuits brought on by civilians as well as some pushback for his treatment of inmates. Talk to us about Tent City, in which Joe Arpaio himself described as concentration camps. Yeah, so the um, Tent City was one of his first innovations, and it was um, one of the first of many things that he was able to do that really captured media attention on a large scale. Um, he His office was very good at, at dreaming up um, very showboaty type media hooks that were irresistible to TV crews. And so Tent City, which were, he used um, Korean War tents, and, and it was billed as a money-saving mechanism to be able to um, incarcerate more people, that there'd never be um, too little room uh, to lock people up, that there'd always be space, and that um, inmates would be, sentenced inmates would be punished because they would have to sleep in these outdoor barracks, um, even during, you know, Arizona's triple digit summers, um, and even, and it can get quite cold here in the winter. Um, there were a number of wrongful death suits um, against the sheriff's office um, filed by uh, the family members of inmates and um, investigations by the Department of Justice. Um, and so there, there was a history um, before his immigration issues of controversy, but he remained very popular. Um, another thing that happened in, in, in Tent City and, and in the jail in general was that he innovated making his inmates wear pink underwear. And these even became a fundraiser um, among his fans, these autographed pink boxer shorts and part of his brand. And there was a segment of the population nationally, really, but also locally that really responded to this. And saw him as a protector, someone who was cracking down on crime. Um, and he was able to make national headlines for these different innovations he would come up with. Um, and so it was really central to his building of his brand as America's toughest sheriff and, and building of a national base, which ultimately was very central to his reelection bids in which he would fundraise nationally. Did was he in, obviously he did some in, innovative for better or worse things, but was he a, otherwise an outlier within the sheriff's office, meaning did his deputies and, and the other people who were reporting to him, were they largely of the same mind or did he have to convince them and win them over to take an even tougher line on what you've already laid out as was not exactly an accommodating uh, uh, history for the area anyway, but what, what was it like within the department? No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I, I also failed to mention that, I mean, his approval numbers were skyrocketing. I mean, for a long time, he was the most popular politician in Arizona with the highest approval ratings um, that polls could find. And so um, I think that um, there were people who, like any agency, felt disgruntled and felt like that some of the TV media plots were distracting from real law enforcement or were embarrassing. Um, but he was a, a leader that his underlings wanted to please was, was something that we found um, routinely and that um, people wanted to please the boss. And so the people who stuck around tended and who were close to him tended to be in that camp. Um, and so as, as time goes on, Later, I mean, it came out that some people would try to disagree with him and, and engage in arguments with him. But he was, um, there was a mix of views within the agency, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think, I think that was, I think Jude's right. There was a mix of views and, and we report that in the book and some of the unks that, you know, some of the deputies went through. Um, am I doing the right thing? If I don't do this, am I going to get fired? The boss says X, but should I do X? Is it legal? That kind of thing. But I think, uh, I think that, um, a lot of people in the book feel that there is a culture, uh, in, in law enforcement in this particularly huge law enforcement agency that even today exists and is very difficult to eradicate. We actually have some photos that you've been so generous to share with us. And so we have the first section in which um, there are some photos of Tent City and the, the pink 
they look like scarves or, or handkerchiefs or towels or yeah, there you go. So proof of the pink thing that he was selling as part of his brand, uh, Joe Arpaio himself. Could you give us some context on this picture here? Yeah, this, this dates back to 2009. And this was at the height of um, Arpaio's immigration crackdown, which, which really started to mount up in 2006, 7, 8, 9. Um, and in this photo, he had put out a press release that and announced that he was going to set up a section of Tent City, this outdoor jail, just for undocumented inmates so that they would have their own section and that it would be surrounded by a, an electric fence. Um, and this was, um, the media were invited to watch as he marched these inmates from one section of the jail to their new segregated portion of Tent City. Um, and so what you don't see in this photo is that there were activists outside of the, the jail gates protesting. Um, this, this ended up being becoming a national news story. Um, there was a New York Times editorial denouncing this spectacle. And the activists who were organizing against Arpaio were able to kind of use this moment, which kind of captured the imagination and which, which many fe- people felt went too far and showed signs of, of discriminatory um, uh, practices within the sheriff's office. Um, it, it helped the, the activists raise awareness of what was happening in Maricopa County. Yeah, it's it's kind of typical of the humiliation that uh, was the daily, you know, that was part of the daily life of an inmate in uh, Maricopa County Jail, according to many of the inmates who were in there. And um, you know, the pink underwear, the pink towel, the towels that you sh- that you saw Michelle in the earlier photograph, those were soaked in water. And inmates wore them around their necks just to keep cool because they were outside in 110, 115, 120 degree heat. And what, is, what are we seeing here? And so this is a worksite raid, which is one of the one of the immigration enforcement tactics Arpaio used once he went full in on immigration enforcement. And so um, the the state had passed some legislation that criminalized, um, made it a uh, penalties for employers who hired workers who turned out to be undocumented, but it also introduced provisions that made it a state felony to work in Arizona to try to get hired in Arizona um, using a a falsified identity or um, an identity that was not um, authorized in the United States for work. And so the sheriff's office would um, stage these massive raids where they would show up. This this is at a car wash and um, arrest people on site where they were suspected to not have proper documentation to be working in the United States, um, which is really a phenomenon that happens all over the country. Usually it's not prosecuted as a felony charge. In, in this case, these immigrants would be charged with felonies, um, imprisoned in Arpaio's jail, um, there was also another Arizona law that made it so that you were not able to be uh, to get bond if you were undocumented. So they would have to wait until their trial several months while incarcerated. Um, in many cases, people just elected to be deported because once there was a felony charge like this on their record, they would become ineligible for any kind of immigration relief. So really what we're seeing in this picture for the people who are being led into that white van, which is um, going to lead them to the jail, they these are people who woke up one day, went to work, and then got arrested. And the, that enforcement, in most cases, led to their deportation and their potentially permanent separation from their families. Yeah, that, that picture is... Uh, it's... It's so striking, um, and and it's it's a metaphor really for what Arizona was doing at the time, which was creating laws that um, made deportable felonies that created deportable felonies that targeted immigrants, so that they would be kicked out of the country. And I think we've got another picture, last picture from this section. President, then President Donald Trump, who I had mentioned in my introduction uh, later on, would pardon Joe Arpaio for his felony conviction. 
you know, Jude, you had mentioned earlier um, the politicization, how immigration became an issue, became a political issue. And this probably fed Joe Arpaio's, I don't know, attitude, ego, whatever, um, in wanting to go to the extreme and enforcing, you know, immigration uh, policies. And you had mentioned just a few of those strategies or tactics, but in some ways, and, you know, do you feel that that it was all politics for Joe Arpaio, do you, or do you feel, or I'm sorry, that might, that might be an opinion I'm asking you and well, I shouldn't. I can answer. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, um, I've, I will give you some um, examples of our reporting and some analysis to answer your question. Cause you're right. I can't possibly know what's in Arpaio's head. What Ar- Arpaio will tell you is that he, sh- he changed his stance on immigration because before 2005, he was basically of the mindset and had been on record saying that as a local law enforcement leader, he did not think it was a priority to crack down on undocumented people who weren't committing crimes. He had been on record saying that. He also, in 2005, took positions that that actually were on the side of undocumented people in some high-profile cases where um, sort of a vigilante had pointed a gun and held at gunpoint a group of suspected migrants and Arpaio Sheriff's Office arrested that man for pointing a gun at people and trying to hold them there. And there was an outcry. And actually, um, people who wanted to restrict immigration um, thought that um, the vigilante was a, a hero and should be celebrated as such and and criticized Arpaio for enabling illegal immigration. And so he got that. He got... Um, a lot of heat and criticism for that stance even went on to do other things that um, continued to help the undocumented community. But in 2006, Arizona passed a new state law. Um, and it, it appears to us that that gave him the political cover to, to change. Um, he, he says he changed because of that state law. I think really what was Notable, though, is that many other law enforcement leaders in the state did not choose to enforce this state law. The state law um, made it a felony to transport somebody into Arizona, um, to smuggle somebody into Arizona. And the way that Arpaio's office interpreted it was that they could now go after migrants who were in vehicles, suspected migrants coming into the state from Mexico they could charge them with felonies for conspiracy to smuggle themselves. And Arpaio's choice to team up with the county prosecutor to prosecute this in this way indicates uh, an enthusiasm, um, an exuberance, really, to uh, crack down on immigration um, in really an unmatched way uh, from anyone else in the entire state. And so I think if we try to get to the bottom of why would that happen, Really, the political pressure from his base seems to be a, a pretty clear um, factor in how this all came to be. Right. And we talked a little bit um, earlier about, you know, what what shaped our pile. We talked about how in the in the drug enforcement, he had been um you know, sort of enamored and learned about conspiracies and charging on conspiracies. So here you see, um, you see him charging, not charging, but um, arresting immigrants for conspiracy to smuggle themselves into Arizona. So you see how there's that long thread that that continues throughout his life. Uh, so I just thought that was interesting. Uh, I want to stick on, on the, the the Trump connection because, of course, he plays um, an important role. But I kind of want to ask, um, was Arpaio kind of Donald Trump's John the Baptist, paving the way for the eventual uh, person who would really ride this to, in this case, national power? I mean, what do you think the relationship between the two of them are? Obviously, as much as you know personally, but as, as well as just kind of politically and socially, what, what's the connection? Okay, well, well, socially, I, I don't think there was much of a connection. And I think that um, possibly our pile yearned for a social connection. But politically, they were very well connected. I mean, they called each other friends. But, you know, our pile once told us, you know, he, he still hadn't been invited into the inner sanctum, you know, 
Um, he flew on Trump's jet once. But how? But getting to your question, uh, many people in the resistance told us that they they viewed Trump and our pile as doppelgangers. You know, they were um, so similar. They were they had authoritarian fathers. They had a, you know a need for approbation. And I do believe that um, our pile that Trump studied. Arpaio's successes. Um, and I think that uh, I, we often asked Arpaio, uh, did you mentor Trump in immigration? We asked him several times and you know, I won't get into what, you know, I won't get into my private conversations. But Arpaio was deeply proud of his relationship with Trump. And often uh, when he ran for senator, and, and a failed bid, he said um, that the reason, one of the reasons that he wanted to run for senator was that so he could get in the Senate and help Trump. I mean, he was um, almost, it was almost reversed. It was almost as if the, the mentor um, became a fan. The mentor became, you know, kneeled at the feet of the, of the mentee almost. And I think just thinking back to the early days of the Trump campaign, um, it's really important to note that in July of 2015, Trump was, you know, had barely entered the race just uh, uh, shortly before that and was still being treated as kind of like a novelty. And there was this kind of a lot of attention on him, but he wasn't being treated as a truly serious candidate at that point. And he held a rally in Phoenix that was an billed as an anti-illegal immigration rally. And Joe Arpaio introduced him at that rally. And the theme was all about immigration and, and border issues. And within weeks of that, we see our we see Trump standing as a candidate really start to take off. And the first formal endorsement he gets is from Joe Arpaio um, in Iowa along with um, Jerry Falwell Jr. And so really, um, Arpaio seemed to play a pretty pivotal role in the rise of, of Trump's campaign. He was there. He spoke at the Republican National Convention as well. Um, and what's interesting, and we'll get into in more detail, is that as, as Arpaio, as you see in this photo, is on the campaign trail campaigning with Trump in 2016, He's he's actually on the verge of losing his bid to be reelected for uh, a seventh time. Um, and so his own constituency is rejecting him at the same time that he's he's on the national stage in this prominent way and that his and that his brand is being validated in this high profile way. And it is in the book, um, it, you know, but uh, Joe Arpaio, I think, actually wanted or tried to investigate uh, Barack, President Barack Obama's birth certificate. So, <laughs> yes, and they they had those that in common, and in that July rally um, that I mentioned, uh, July 2015, Arpaio got on stage and said that he and Trump had a number of things in common, including they were born on the same day, um, June 14th. They have the same birthday of uh, different years. Um, they both want to do something about illegal immigration, and they both um, had had uh, their doubts about uh, President Barack Obama's birth certificate. And so um, th this, this, that was an issue that did unite them from the beginning. I was just going to say, in the book, we write about um, this moment that is captured um, on film, The Joe Show, um, in which um, Arpaio is strategizing a, a run for sheriff with his uh, advisors. And he says he's going to... Uh, add the birth certificate, but he always called it the birth certificate. That was his shorthand for the uh, investigation. Uh, and he said he was going to start that because it would bring in a lot of money with his base. And indeed, he did get millions of dollars from all over the country for this alleged investigation. Let's turn our attention to the activists who took down Sheriff Joe Arpaio and who fought against bills like Senate Bill 1070, which is very similar to California's Prop 187. Um, and the book begins with Lydia, Lydia Guzman. And I'd love to start talking about, you know, the folks that it, I mean, nearly a decade of activism and advocacy and, and lawsuits and fighting against, you know, these bills, uh, just how hard they had to work to take them down. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think what's, what's interesting about Lydia Guzman, who we focus on is that she came of age in California in the 1990s. She was born in Southern California to her mother had come to the U S undocumented from Mexico. Um, and she grew up speaking Spanish, being at home in, in, um, in many different kinds of, of situations. Um, but really it was prop 187, which, uh, California voters passed in 1994, um, with uh, a lot of support from then governor Pete Wilson. It was a, an initiative that would restrict undocumented immigrants from accessing many public benefits, including public school and certain um, healthcare. And so this to Lydia Guzman, who was born in the US, was a US citizen, was not personally impacted by this, but like many Latino Californians felt like this was a slap in the face, that it was an attack on the entire community, both those who were documented and those who were undocumented, especially since so many families are mixed status families. Um, and the kind of perception that there would be discrimination that would ensue to the entire community because of this, um, of, of these kinds of policies. So she joined the California backlash to that proposition. It was later um, challenged in the courts and thrown out. Um, but there was also a huge wave of organizing that happened in California, people who got involved in politics for the first time. And there was a, a tremendous effort to help naturalize citizens uh, naturalize, Im help immigrants who were eligible to become citizens to go through the naturalization process so they could become new voters and to help change the political landscape of the state. And Lydia threw herself into that cause, got very involved, and then later moved to Arizona just a few years later and brought some of the same lessons with her. And we saw California undergo a political transformation in the aftermath of Proposition 187. And Lydia, for years, was hoping that she could be part of, of a similar transformation in Arizona um, and was involved in, in voter registration efforts, but also efforts to defend um, the immigrant community. And Joe Arpaio, his crackdown really gave her a purpose in the sense that she began a hotline um, with the help of sort of a, a businessman um, who was sort of secretly funding her efforts. Um, she started a hotline to take calls from people in the immigrant community who felt that they were being harassed or persecuted in some way. And, and one goal of this hotline was also to try to collect names of people who might become plaintiffs in a racial profiling lawsuit against Arpaio that a number of attorneys and, and activists on the ground were working to, to push through the court system. I think um, as, as we've been out talking to people about our book and as readers have given us feedback, um, I've come to understand how deeply uh, we all need heroes in this time of history in the United States. And uh, Lydia Guzman is a hero and in the book, she shares uh, everything. She's a flawed hero, as are we all, and she's very human. And um, what she goes through resonates in with uh, with readers in the book because she's so real, and because she picks herself up and fails, and picks herself up and goes on. Um, Lydia's activism so consumed her at one point um, that she her husband left her. And she talks about this in the book and what it was like. And um, she also lost her home. And she talks about, you know, the financial, uh, the financial issues that she had to go through. Um, in the end, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. In the end, she prevails. And in the end, um, you know, she, she emerges as a hero. Now, not to say that there aren't other heroes in the resistance. They're all heroes. But um, Lydia Guzman is one of the key characters in the book, and she's so generous in sharing her emotions and her struggles and her victories with us that it's a, it's a real genuine read, and you will see yourself in Lydia, especially if you're a woman, I think. Um, 
she's a little bit Erin Brockovich and she's a little bit Dolores Huerta. And uh, she, she is a fabulous, fabulous person to read about. You'll feel, I think, uplifted. And I think one of the goals as we were doing this research and realizing, you know, just what it took on a human level for people who were just regular people and who saw something happening in their community, they saw, we haven't even really discussed it yet, but one of our PIO's um, immigration enforcement uh, techniques was to swarm neighborhoods and um, pull cars over for minor traffic violations. And if people were suspected of being undocumented immigrants in those traffic stops, they would be turned over to ICE. And there were Latino U.S. citizens who also felt that they too were being targeted. And then there was a separate legal question, which was that a judge had found that Arpaio didn't actually have legal authority to arrest immigrants um, if they hadn't committed any crimes. And so there was sort of two parallel issues going on with, with that kind of enforcement. But, um, but there were regular people like Lydia who saw this going on or whose own families were impacted or whose neighbors were impacted who joined this effort to try to strategize. And they would get together weekly to think of how to stop Arpaio, how to make this lawsuit against him work, how to try to change the electoral landscape in Arizona so that different politicians would be elected, how to capture what was going on and have the media write about it. So there were these regular people who were strategizing day in and day out. And we wanted to capture what that actually meant, the human toll to actually do this work. And um, yeah, we're very grateful that Lydia opened up to reveal the the huge cost that, you know, change on a big scale on a, an individual to carry to carry that. And, and it, the same happened to so many others. It's not just her. So many others who threw themselves into this fight had to give up something. There's always a, as they say, for every action, there's a, an equal and opposite uh, counteraction. But so what sort of, what was the counteraction? What, I mean, we're in, we're in such a, it, it's overused to say we're in a polarized uh, society politically. We're in a, a hyper um, kind of attack mode society politically. And so you have, you know, these, these mostly online, luckily, but unfortunately in person as well, just, just fierce attacks against anyone who stands up and they don't really even care. All they're trying to do is get you to not stand up. So how did Lydia and, and others in her circle then deal with whatever pushback they got? I think, um, I think they helped each other. Um, I think that, um, when Lydia went through a sort of discrimination, she would, um, she would reach out and talk, talk to her friends. And I think they, they got themselves through it that way. Um, I think it's really, this is really an inside look in this book about, you know, the, about a resistance that worked and that is still ongoing. Um, and one of the things about the resistance is that it, it was, it was mostly, um, people of Mexican descent or Mexican immigrants, but it also included indigenous people, uh, all sorts of people, uh, young people, dreamers, right? And um, older activists who'd been Chicanos and white allies of every possible age. And um, they, they coordinated very well. That's one of the issues. So, so in terms of the pushback that they got from what they called the haters, um, I think I think they took care of each other by just talking about it. And and like any movement, there were internal divisions. Um, there were differences in opinions and strategy. Um, there, for example, another activist we we profile in the book, Carlos Garcia, who's now on the Phoenix City Council. As an example, there's been a few people who were activist members of the resistance who've now gone into elected office in, in Arizona and in the Phoenix area. Carlos is one of them. And so when he was of the mindset that he wanted to do things that were more oriented towards civil disobedience, towards um, helping affected communities empower themselves and get involved in, in the movement. And he was distrustful of certain institutions like the Democratic Party this idea that they would deliver immigration reform or that the Obama administration who was deporting people, including Carlos's own family members, he was reluctant to put a lot of faith that they would save the day. Um, this is Carlos Garcia. Um, you're seeing in the photo. Um, 
for example, the Obama administration was, did have a, the Department of Justice was investigating Arpaio. Um, and, and there, there was a division within the community, how much to trust that and how much stock to put in that. And, and Lydia represents somebody who was much more in favor of, of going through institutions, trusting the courts, trusting the Department of Justice, hoping that Democrats would pass reform. And so we see those divisions. We also see that there was jealousy within the movement at some points. Lydia was accused of being um, somebody who was just out there to enrich herself. And um, there was a Spanish language radio host who would denounce her on air. And, you know, this was very painful, especially because at the time she was going through such financial hardships. But I think that these are patterns that frequently emerge um, in, in these kinds of fights. And I think it's important for all of us to understand those details and, and what actually is going on behind the scenes. I'm just going to flip through the, the photos here. And that's a scene outside of the courthouse. Um, so a lot of the book takes place at the, the federal courthouse in Phoenix, where um, uh, with Lydia's help and the ACLU and, the, and MALDEF and um, private attorneys, uh, a group of Latino uh, plaintiffs sued Arpaio for racial profiling. And that case uh, took years and years to resolve and is still ongoing today, in fact. In the, um, but um, each hearing would often involve a, a colorful protest outside. People from the community um, would get engaged. And at a certain point, it came out that Arpaio had not followed court orders. Once the judge had ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, he'd ordered the sheriff's office to stop its practices to... Um, reform the agency so they would no longer be engaged in profiling and to halt uh, the arrests of immigrants who were not suspected of committing crimes. It later came out that that last piece was something that Arpaio's office had failed to implement. These immigration arrests had persisted in violation of court orders. And um, there was a call to arrest Arpaio, not the people. And that had gone on. That was sort of a, a mantra of the movement. But at a certain point, he was actually facing the potential for criminal contempt of court uh, prosecution, which actually happened in 2017, and that was the that was the crime that he was ultimately pardoned for by by then President uh, Donald Trump. Oh, this is um, one of the vigils. I believe that's an SB 1070 vigil. Um, remember that at the time, our pile was um, enforcing immigration in immigration laws in Maricopa County, the state was passing a, a number of uh, laws that made it easier for the state for officials to deport um, undocumented immigrants. And um, SB 1070, Senate Bill 1070, as we talked about before, was one of the most egregious. And this is a vigil, a prayer vigil in front of the Capitol in which um, People came every night for days and days and days and prayed that um, Jan Brewer would not sign SB 70 into law. The governor would not sign SB 70 into law, that it would not take effect. But it did. And it was wrapped up in the courts and, and um, a portion of it still lives on. But there were these um, ongoing protests of it and litigation that, that dragged on. And it was kind of... Um, this question of what could local law enforcement in Arizona do on the immigration issue, which was what that that law was very much about, as was this question about what could Arpaio do. And so those two those two issues were very intertwined during this period of Arizona history. And he was really kind of a symbol of what could happen if you empowered local law enforcement to crack down on on immigration that that there, it could lead to constitutional abuses. And so opponents of this kind of uh, policy would point to Arpaio as an example of, of the dangers. And, um, and this represents a, a balloon, that, uh, inflatable, that the movement created um, once Arpaio was um, facing contempt of court uh, charges and the possibility of prosecution. Um, they made a balloon that showed him in prison stripes. And I think for, for many people in the community who had been f 
fighting against the idea that they themselves were criminals because they were undocumented or that their family members were criminals for, for being in this country undocumented. They were, to them, it felt like poetic justice that now Arpaio was facing crimes for, for that very fact. And so they made this inflatable to highlight the fact that he was facing prison time. And um, in the end, and then once Arpaio was pardoned by Trump, um, that was something that many people who had fought him or who had um, felt like he was finally getting his comeuppance to them, that was um, a very devastating moment once that pardon went through. And of course, to Arpaio's allies, they felt like finally justice had been served because the sheriff had been wrongfully accused or unfairly prosecuted. How much do you think that that um, pardon played in the uh, turning blue, if you will, of Maricopa County and therefore Arizona in the 2020 election? Do you think Trump did it himself in that with that one thing, or do you think it would have flipped either, even without that? Well, that's an interesting question. The, the the pardon part of it, yeah, and I'll let Terry speak to that. I was just going to say that that 2016 was a year that, um, uh, and one of your other photos might show this, um, there, there was a campaign called the Basta Arpaio campaign, um, where uh, an army of young people and, um, and other advocates um, really did a tremendous uh, effort mobilizing voters, voters of color who campaigns typically ignored, um, that hadn't had a history of voting, um, went door to door and really energized people with this idea of let's get Arpaio out of office. And um, Arpaio's defeat in 2016 was by 13 points. And this was after winning consecutively for six terms. Um, and uh, and there were other efforts. George Soros donated a lot of money to a PAC uh, to oppose him. And so there were a few factors going on. But the grassroots component, the the people involved in this Basta Arpaio campaign in 2016, they kept mobilizing voters um, in 2018, in 2020. And so these um, some of the, the on-the-ground efforts that were born out of the opposition to Arpaio helped uh, build a, an electorate and a voting power uh, around the idea that, that if Arpaio could be defeated, Trump could be defeated as well. And that, se- that we heard from young people who were involved in these campaigns, that they heard from voters directly that seeing that 2016 defeat of Arpaio made it feel like it was worthwhile to vote in the 2020 race because maybe their vote did count after all. Anything to add, Terry? Um, I just I, I just want to flag, um, just to add to what Jude so beautifully said, uh, that, you know, Arizona is very fragile um, politically right now. Um, it, we're uh, it's such a moment of transformation in Arizona as it is across the nation. And um, I think Trump was defeated for a number of reasons in Arizona. Um, first, I think he offended suburban Republicans, and I think they turned on him a little bit. Um, and then this huge Latino resistance in this get out the vote effort. And um our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, did an incredible job um, getting out the indigenous vote. So it's a number of factors. But now, of course, we are um, struggling with we have a very red uh, state house. And um, that is why we're having that bizarre audit in Maricopa County that everybody's reading about the recount. Um, so so I think Arizona is fragile. And I think Trump, not the pardon as much as just Trump himself, uh, kind of got voters to turn against him, some voters. Well, and there are always questions of, like, okay, has it really, I use the term turn blue, which is probably inaccurate, but, you know, how much has this really changed? Because there was so much energy that had to be, is, I'm just focusing on 2020, so many, you know, zillions of calls and doors knocked on and, and, and all the work that went into that. And in 2020, it was very narrow. Um, and, and, you know, it, you kind of like, okay, well, without Trump or Arpaio on, on the ballot or in the news, you know, is that likely to uh, revert back? So it'll be interesting to me to know kind of, okay, this, the, this, resistance that built up on, on uh, against Arpaio 
and did then transfer, we think, to to against Trump. How much of that is the new political norm for that area, and the, this is a new rising class of politically involved people, or how much will that, you know, kind of settle over time and and you know maybe it still does turn blue at some point, but maybe that's in the offing. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's a great point because I think it's important to remember that um, you know many of the voters who turned on who turned against Arpaio and who turned against Trump were were Republicans and independents who aren't necessarily going to vote for a progressive Democrat. And that's something that, um, you know, is, is playing out in interesting ways in, in the Democratic Party and, and Democratic candidates in Arizona are um, grappling with what does that mean to run as a Democrat in this state with such, um, with such narrow margins in, in favor for Democrats. So, so I think that, um, you know, John McCain brand of, of Republican politics, Jeff Flake, left his seat because he felt like he couldn't, um, that the constituency wasn't dominant enough for his brand of politics. Um, but, you know, that there are still a lot of voters who would have supported Republicans who looked like Flake or McCain, but they weren't given those options. And so I think that um, it, it will be very interesting to see, and it's really going to come down to who the candidates are um, as as you know, like any race, but um, I think especially here, the the party lines might not matter as much as the individuals. I, I can't believe we're already running out of time. I want to make sure that we talk about the Melendres case, which is the racial profiling lawsuit, the class action lawsuit against Joe Arpaio. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about that, but also add, you know, what happened between 2017 to 2020 with regards to immigration and immigration reform and enforcement under the Trump administration, um, we, we, don't, we know the impacts of it, uh, but how can the Melendres case potentially affect like, the, the future, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at, is um, we hope that these types of practices, these unconstitutional, inhumane practices, don't repeat themselves. Well, I think what's so interesting is when when there are police reform cases in the courts, it's often because there's a, a motivated Department of Justice, like we saw under Obama, bringing um, bringing suit against specific agencies as the Department of Justice, and that happened in Maricopa County. But the case that we're talking about, the Melendres case, was this class action case, um, and that that case moved faster than the Department of Justice's case, and so. Really, the reforms that stemmed that happened were as a result of the Melendres class action case, and so this is um, an important reminder: just that regular people who feel like they've been harmed or have their rights violated by police can become plaintiffs in these cases and sue and win, and that's what this case showed. Um, but it also showed just how long it takes and how hard it is and how many resources are involved. I mean, this case was first filed in 2007 and um, there was a preliminary injunction that um, later we found out the sheriff's office didn't follow, which was issued four years later in 2011. And then there wasn't a permanent ruling until 2013. Um, and so it continues to this day that the case, um, because now the sheriff's office is under court orders uh, to follow to implement these these uh, court re ordered reforms, and there's a period of compliance that they have to reach um, before this this court supervision will be lifted. But it's, I mean, it's costing millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer money, and so I think that um, it's such a valuable case study of kind of what it takes for one of these cases to happen and just the tremendous resources involved. Cause it really begs the question, is there a more efficient way to do this? Um, and, and what would that look like? Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but, um, but this, this has been very costly and very time consuming and taken a very long time, even though many people would count it, count it as a victory. And there's people like Melendres himself, who was the name plaintiff who questions whether it, what he got out of it. Um, he, he feels disappointed to read stories about how much this case is costing. And it wasn't supposed to be a case about damages, but he wonders, well, 
if, you know, if I was wronged, why, why didn't I get paid? And, and it, you know, the, the court case could have been structured differently, but there are people who, um, who still question at the end of the day, what, what was really gained, even though so much changed and so much happened, um, in some ways it'll, it'll, um, it, it shows how hard it is to move the needle. One of the things I, that really surprised me when I got into the book was how much access you had to Joe Arpaio. Could you tell us a bit about how that came about and then your your interactions with him? Because you you he grants a number of interviews with you and seemed to be fairly open. So how did that come about and what do you think he was thinking? What do you think his reasons were for being so communicative? We talked. We talked earlier about how his in his days in the DEA, he sort of self validate. He learned to self validate um, by media coverage, and so he's always very, very open to um, media coverage and to talking to reporters. It, reporters are always going to his office. Um, we also uh, showed up a lot. You know, we showed up at his events and he, he um, got very used to us. And of course, he always knew what was going in the book because with all the people in the book, we um, fact checked three times just to make sure. So um, he, he just he just enjoys talking to journalists, you know, and um, we asked him really tough questions. And sometimes uh, those questions are, you know, the answers to those questions are under dispute. And, and we very much um, not did not only rely on what he told us, but we re- we reported what he did. And this brings us brings me to one point about the book that I want that I hope your listeners and viewers will understand is that all of these events we've talked about today, all of these issues are told um, through the people in the book who live through them. So we don't it's 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 a, the people in the book carry you through the book because they are the ones experiencing um, on both sides of the of the debate, they're the ones experience, having the experiences. Sometimes we're in their living rooms, and sometimes we're in their workplaces, and sometimes we're with them as they uh, work on as they're act in their activism. But it, but the people in the book are the ones who live through this, and it's their stories that carry the the content, the context of the book, the history. I want to thank you so much, both of you, for uh, for the book, Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, versus the Latino Resistance. So pick up your copy. My very last question to you is that the book did make me wonder, what is Joe Arpaio up to now? And so on his Twitter today, he promoted his book, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, An American Legend. <laughs> I thought it was um, it was interesting. What a what a contrast. Uh, so the quick question is. Have you read it? Will you read it? Yeah, actually, his book came out um, before ours, um, and he's he's been doing a lot of promotional work around it. Um, and um, and yes, I did. We read his other two books as well. Um, th- this one is um, his latest one, but he he had two other memoirs as well, which um, you know we we found useful in our reporting. It certainly, yeah, but it it is a bit different than our book. I, I'm pretty much um, done with Joe Arpaio at this point. Uh, I'm not going to read his third book. We did read his, um, both of us read his first two books, which are very similar. Um, but no, I'm not going to read it. John, last question for you. Um, this is the the most obvious question, but um, having just completed this book and now uh, rolling it out and, and talking about it, um, What's next? What What are you? Is there? Is there? Is, man, I guess what I'm really getting at is: is your kind of next projects you're envisioning along the same lines or connected to this, or is it? Do you have something else uh, in mind? Jude, do you want to go first? Um, you know, I'm I'm still curious. I think that there's still some untapped stories from this era that you know we weren't able to capture in the book, and I'm curious about whether there's some way to engage people who live through this history in Maricopa County through some kind of oral history project to just continue to document this stage of Arizona history and Maricopa County history that 
was so dynamic and so formative and and so troubling to so many people. Um, so I, I am interested in exploring ways to continue to capture this um, beyond the book. So um, I wrote a previous book um, that looked at this time in history uh, through the eyes of those most impacted, through the voices of those most impacted, um, the immigrants themselves. And so after these two books, I'm, I'm pretty, I think, I think I'm going to turn my attention uh, to uh, writing more about myself uh, and my relationship to the border. I come from a borderlands family, and I have both Mexican and um, non-Mexican DNA, and um, I'd like to write about identity and what shapes us, even though we might look like it doesn't shape us that way. Terry, Jude, thank you so much for sharing all your work with us this afternoon. We very much appreciate you and your book, Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance. Please pick up a copy today. Thank you, all of you, for joining us for this insightful conversation. John? I'll just repeat, Michelle, thanks to our speakers and all of you who are watching and listening to us online. Remember, you can find more upcoming programs as well as audio and video of past events at commonwealthclub.org. That's it for our program today. Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.